You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues of matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to our McKinsey Podcast. I'm Bar Seitz, Global Publishing Lead for McKinsey's Marketing and Sales and Digital Practices. And I'm very happy to introduce our two guests today, Mitra Madavian, an Associate Principal in our Marketing and Sales Practice, focused particularly on tech and sales, and Maria Valdivieso, the Director of Knowledge for the Marketing and Sales Practice and co-author of Sales Growth, Five Proven Strategies from the World's Sales Leaders which has recently come out in its second edition. I'll be talking today to Maria and Mitra about how sales can drive growth, what are the strategies that work, and how sales is evolving in today's digital world. Maria, first question is for you. I was walking past a bookstore in an airport the other day and saw at least a dozen books on sales. Does the world really need another book on sales? Hi, Bart. Yes, I think the world needs a new book on sales growth. This book is a conversation with over 200 leaders across different organizations. This book is for sales executives and sales management, and it provides strategies and tactics that are proven on how to drive growth. Great. So growth is certainly a topic that's getting a lot of attention, uh, particularly with the economic climate being so challenging. But Mitra, clearly there are companies that are still able to grow even within the constrained environment we are in today. So what are they doing that the others aren't? It's an interesting question, Bar. So we did a lot of research, both an extensive survey of sales executives and a lot of interviews. And we found that there were five practices that shined through that differentiated the fast growing companies from the slow growing companies. First, they find growth before their competitors do. So they invest in identifying growth opportunities, whether through understanding trends or drilling into big data or finding pockets of growth in their existing markets. Second, they sell the way their customers want to buy. So they use multiple channels to reach and serve customers of all different sizes in different markets. Uh, And they optimize and organize across direct, indirect, and digital channels very efficiently. Third, they soup up their sales engines. And especially, they invest in sales operations, pre-sales, and the alignment between marketing and technology to fire up and build their engines for growth. Fourth, they focus on their people. This one goes without saying that there's a need to spend time training, coaching, mentoring the frontline sales uh, teams and to balance that between both the drive for near-term growth and building longer-term capabilities for the field. And finally, they lead from the top. So they invest in and gain commitment from the organization and are able to build the vision for their change and their plans from the executives and from the top down, but also invest in change management and implement change from the ground up. That's a great overview of what the book covers and what sales leaders are able to really do. All those areas, what are the one or two that really stand out for you that sales leaders really differentiate themselves on? Well, certainly one was the deployment and use of technology and analytics. So we found that uh, sales executives are continuing to invest in 
deploying analytics and technology to make their sales teams more productive, both in the front end of sales, so digital channels, e-commerce capabilities, and in the back end with capabilities for their planning and sales operations. That was a very clear theme that emerged. And the second was people. We know from our own research and the time we spend with our clients that talent and sales talent is always a critical topic, but we were surprised that many of the executives that responded to our research felt that they still didn't have the capabilities they need for growth. Uh, and they still haven't even been able to identify some of the uh, capabilities they need for the future and how they need to be moving their sales teams. The one that also stuck for me is investing in future growth. One of the themes that many of the leaders mention is that companies and sales leaders, they're so busy thinking about the, and the quarter and the year quotas and numbers that it's really hard for them, but they really push themselves to thinking about where is growth going to come 10 quarters from now? What are some of the trends around technology, around demographics, around um, regulation, and how is that going to affect their current business and their future business? And they actually are bold enough to invest current budget to capture that. So we saw that about uh, fast growth companies invest between four to six percent of their sales budget to capture future growth. And I imagine that future growth outlook uh, depends a lot on, on analytics and digital. Um, as you were pointing out, Mitra, that's a key feature. Maria, in the first edition of your book, you covered digital and analytics, um, but the changes we're seeing in those areas weekly, if not daily, really highlight how much has changed since that first edition come out. So emphasizing the extent of that change, you open a chapter citing Taylor Swift. So I'm going to ask a question I never thought I'd ask at McKinsey. <laughs> what can sales leaders learn from Taylor Swift? She is incredible at managing an omni-channel strategy. That is, you know, she's able to have a fantastic engagement with her fan base and continuing building her fan base through her social media channels. At the same time, her concerts are phenomenal, money-making, tremendous events. And then on top of that, she's very good at figuring out what channels are going to work from her and which ones are not. So how she leverages iTunes and other channels or not, you know, for her benefit, I think she's phenomenal at that. I think what companies are struggling in today's world is how to create a seamless omni-channel experience for their customers, right? Customers today are expecting to be able to access products and services through a variety of channels. Some of them are direct channels, some of them are third-party channels, but they're expecting the same service levels and they're expecting that you as a vendor, as a company, are able to understand them through all these different channels. That creates a lot of complexity. It also creates a lot of cost. But we've seen that winning organizations are actually able to capitalize on an omnichannel strategy. And that's increasingly true with the modern buyer and the way customers want to buy today. It's interesting, we found the top channel for B2B buyers when they're um, doing research on what they want to purchase is actually just online search, so the internet. And we also did some research on B2B decision makers and it you wouldn't be surprised to know that they're always on for business. So even during their commute, their evenings, their weekends, they spend a lot of time on their cell phones and tablets and are doing research on business products via their personal devices. And so more than ever, that omni-channel presence for B2B buyers is important in reaching target audiences for all companies. 
What's interesting about this point with integration uh, is that it's a theme that comes through in the book a number of times. Uh, but I was particularly struck about the point with pre-sales, which is often overlooked. And pre-sales to really function needs to be an integral part of the sales pipeline. Mitra, can you tell us a little bit about what pre-sales is and what its value is? Absolutely. So pre-sales is a dedicated team of experts that spend their time on a mix of technical and commercial activities. Let me give you some examples. Things like crafting solutions for customers' problems or managing deal qualification and bid. And we found that companies that invest in this capability are able to achieve win rates of 40 to 50% in new business and 80 to 90% in renewal business, well above average rates of what we see uh, with other companies. What enables companies to achieve that kind of success is because they're able to better deploy their resources against opportunities that matter. So they don't just identify leads, they actually spend the time to qualify and do the pre-work to understand which opportunities are going to provide the highest results, typically by doing advanced analytics or using historical trends uh, as uh, predictors. Uh, another opportunity in pre-sales is submitting bids. We found that a lot of companies end up not having acted on leads even a few days after they've been submitted. And companies that have invested in pre-sales are able to more effectively deploy resources against those leads and act on them more quickly. And that integration of uh, activities and deployment of resources with some digital and technical abilities to make them more efficient and intelligent is what allows those companies to capture additional growth. One of the things that I would add is uh, pre-sales resources tend to be expensive and you have to be very mindful on how you align them and assign them to different projects. Uh, so many of the clients that I work with and many of the companies we interviewed, they're very thoughtful as to understanding what deals are competitive, which ones are strategic, which ones are complex, and actually develop a, a formula to assign resources based on need. Um, alternatively, you can end up spending cost in the wrong places, uh, and you can end up um, you know, decreasing your sales ROI through that. Given how important pre-sales is, why do you think it's such an overlooked area? It's an overlooked area for a few reasons. Um, the one that I would highlight is that Many organizations have developed pre-sales resources and capabilities in a not organized manner. So you might have a sales rep that ends up having more technical skills, so you end up leveraging that sales rep much more like a technical expert, um, as opposed to systematically thinking about the right org structure and, and you know capabilities required to do that. I also think that in times of um, slowdown, companies unfortunately look at non-quota carrying resources, and many pre-sales experts tend to be non-quota carrying, and they cut that first. Uh, and when companies continue rebuilding their sales forces, they tend to forget to continue to bring this capability in. I think that technology companies in the technology sector, you tend to see better organization structures and you tend to see much more advanced pre-sales um, processes and, and practices than in some of the other ones. Uh, and I would look at those organizations as some of the great examples. 
Many of those companies uh, that are doing pre-sales well have also invested in the technology to make those resources very productive. And so by enabling them with analytical insights and tools to better understand where in the deal cycle to plug in and which deals to plug into, they're able to get the most leverage from the resources that they've invested in. Excellent. Okay, I'm going to pivot away from the very tactical area of pre-sales and move to our crystal ball moment of this podcast. In the book, you looked at a number of trends and extrapolated what they could mean for sales. Knowing that this is a dangerous question with few clear answers, where do you see the future of sales? Maria, let's start with you. This is one of my favorite questions, and it was one of my favorite parts of the research for the book. Um, I saw a few trends emerging, so let me share those with you. The first one is the trend around automation and artificial intelligence. One of the things we learned through some of the research conducted by the McKinsey Global Institute is that with today's technology, up to 40% of sales activities can be automated, which is tremendous if you think about it. 40% of sales activities can be automated. If we think about technology evolving, that number could get up to 50%. Um, if you look at that across different roles, of course, it varies a lot, right? So for example, as a part salesperson, 80% of his role can be automated. But if you think about a sales manager, it's only like 5 to 10%. As Mitra has mentioned throughout the podcast, technology is here, technology is here to stay, and we have to help sales leaders think about how to embrace technology and what technology to use. With that, artificial intelligence is also coming and will, will come and will stay here as well. So we see a lot of bots being used already in customer service. And I think there's a very small bridge to cross to move bots from customer service to very transactional sales uh, processes and sales uh, products. Um, so soon enough, we will be seeing bots more and more and more. And I was surprised with the level of technology and how smart the bots are and how much they can learn from different interactions. The other area, big area that we saw um, is around outsourcing. So letting somebody else do the selling for you. And it's a different type of outsourcing in the sense that it's end-to-end marketing and sales outsourcing. So again, in some of the more transactional sales, uh, we've already seen being able to outsource all the way from starting a campaign to acquiring a customer where the vendor, the organization is paying for performance. The opportunity with analytics and digital and sales is tremendous. And we've seen that in the results of companies that have started to deploy these capabilities in their sales. As we go forward, we'll see more and more of those solutions adopted in sales beyond the traditional applications of uh, analytics and tools such as CRM or basic forecasting to more advanced functionality like deal scoring and next product to buy insights and better ways to deploy sales resources to opportunities like we were talking about earlier. And I think that's gonna enable sales teams to unleash a level of productivity that's gonna be Uh, higher than anything we've seen in the past at the same time allowing them to do what they do best which is selling and spending time on selling activities rather than uh, some of the back office tasks that may be taking their time away. Great. With all this talk about digital and technology and robotics I'm going to voice something I know we're all thinking that the machines are going to take over the world. 
So I know it's easy to get caught up in those kind of quasi-apocalyptic views of machines, and that makes great for great movies. But as you both have pointed out during this podcast, um, this point about the, the need for humans and leadership is easy to get lost um, in all this talk, and it's particularly crucial. What stories of leadership really struck out for you, and why? One of my favorite conversations was with Jeff Schomburger. He's the global sales leader for Procter Gamble, and we talked to him about big data in sales. And it was very interesting because he kept mentioning to us um, the fundamentals of selling have not changed. The questions that are being asked have not changed. However, we have much more data and which ways of answering those questions. Many organizations struggle with making their data strategies a success. And that is because they have a lot of data, but they don't know how to turn data into insights. And many organizations actually have insights, but they don't know how to make the insight something that's actionable for the sales rep out in the front line. So I think one of the things that I found fascinating with talking to Jeff was how to actually drive insights, shopper insights, all the way down to the account manager that is having discussions with a retailer, and then bring those insights into strategies on how to drive sales growth. As you said, Maria, the need for basic selling capabilities and the empathy and solution selling capabilities that a salesperson brings is not going away. And in fact, what's happening is the bar on that is going higher and higher over time because with digital and technology enabling the basics of information getting to customers, the bar for the sales rep's role is increasing over time to be more solution-led, more consultative. And um, so the need for sales teams to be investing in developing those skills for their front line is increasing. And it's this duality of building both the skills on the empathy side and the solution selling side and the relationship building side, while at the same time investing in some of these new capabilities that allow the sales team to use and leverage the analytics and the technology that exists today and bring those insights to their customers more effectively and connect to them faster. The CEO of a very large tech company told us that she recently visited a call center and met a few young millennial insight sellers that had recently closed a few very large, very complex deals. And she was astonished. She asked them, how were you able to close these deals remotely without ever meeting the customers? And the inside selling reps said, what do you mean we haven't met the customer? We talk to them all the time. We FaceTime. We're connected on social media. Uh, we have a ton of information about them from our systems and from our lead call process. So, of course, we've met the customers. And it was this interesting moment where the CEO realized that the new generation of sellers think about the selling process in a very different way compared to the historical, traditional view of whining and dining and meeting up in person. So, Maria and Mitra, you've told some great stories and we have some great statistics here behind the strategies, but I imagine a question you get all the time is, okay, that's great, but how do we do this? Uh, any examples or cases or mini cases that you can share about a company that embarked on a change to drive greater sales growth? 
Yes, we actually talked to the head of sales strategy for a global technology company. And the first thing he mentioned that was quite interesting is that the reason for the sales transformation was the customer was pushing for it. The customer was asking, uh, they didn't need to buy products anymore, but they actually had problems that needed to be solved. So they came to the organization and said, we need to solve all these problems, help us with solutions. Don't sell products to us, but sell solutions to us. You know, of course, it's easier said than done. So for the organization to move away from just selling products to selling solutions, they actually had to change quite a bit. They had to change how they were organized. They had to change how they inspire people. They had to change the technical expertise required. Um, so it was all starting with the customer. The biggest step was aligning the leadership around a common vision. There was a lot of siloed activity in the various geos and in the different parts of sales. And for all of that to come together in a harmonized fashion, there was a lot of effort required to make sure that the vision at the top was clear enough that it could then get translated to the field in a harmonized and aligned manner. The second thing was getting specific on the change management down to the roles and responsibilities in the front lines. So not just a theoretical exercise of what we want to do differently or how we want to be organized differently or what are some of the new things we want to bring to our customers, but really drawing that red thread through the roles and what the field was doing, how they were spending time, what they were being trained on, and really making sure that all of those things came together to deliver the customer experience the company was aspiring to deliver. But I imagine with, you know, as with any change effort, what is planned is different from what actually happens on the ground. So you can talk a little bit about what did happen in, you know, assigning those roles. How did the organization set itself up to react and change to really make this successful? It's a good question, Bar. And the fact is things change and i think what made this effort and what made the sales transformation successful was the focus on salespeople and the focus on customers because that gave a true north star throughout the journey which was a two to three year journey of transformation and as you said not every role transition went the way it was expected. Not every capability effort, not every harmonization played out the way it was planned. But because there was a true North Star of the customer experience, what the customer wanted, and also our people, our sales teams, it allowed the company and the sales leadership to come together when they hit some of those roadblocks and some of those questions to reevaluate and reset the direction, but always align to where they wanted to go and that true North Star for them. And that was a big part of what made this successful because, you know, it's one thing to say, this is what we want to do, but it's another to really play that out and live that transformation every day for three years. And unless you have that anchor point of where you want to get to and what you're really trying to do, it can be very easy uh, to get fragmented very quickly. And Mitra, if I can add, um, I think also the way they measure the success of the program, right? On, on the one hand, mm -hmm. it was actually measuring the impact on profit, but then on the other hand, and equally important, 
was measuring the impact of customer satisfaction. So I think it all being back anchored on the customer was actually quite critical for this successful transformation. Could you provide a detail in terms of how having, as you say, that North Star of understanding the customer sort of practically in a practical situation allowed them to overcome a hurdle, which is just a natural byproduct of any transformation effort? Sure. So I'll give you one example. There were two sales roles that had very similar activities that one of the efforts coming out of the sales transformation was to merge those roles. But keep in mind, this was thousands of people in each role. And so for it to get merged at an account level was uh, quite an undertaking. And one of the things that happened was, although there was an original description and definition for what the combined role was going to do. There was also an understanding that we were going to learn as we go. So the transformation itself would show what works, what doesn't work, and we would course correct as needed. And so when that aspiration of a combined role was taken into the geos and into the account level, certainly there was a lot of questions raised around is this the right thing? What about the responsibilities that fall off? How would we handle certain types of customer requests? Do all customers need the same thing from this role? So all these questions came up. And I think, uh, like I said, both having the attitude of we will go back and we will reassess so that we can handle the questions that come up appropriately. And then secondly, the North Star, how does the customer want to buy? for all these questions that are raised on what is the right thing and, and this is how we want to sell or this is how we used to sell or this is what's worked historically, coming back to say, okay, but what do we think the customer needs moving forward? How would they prefer uh, to interact with this role and what are the responsibilities of this role that matter most to the customer? Those two things allowed for the role definition to evolve slightly over the course of uh, about a year that was the timeline required to truly merge those two roles. Great. I'm afraid we're out of time, but thank you very much uh, for joining me in this conversation. If you want to get a copy of Sales Growth, you can find it on Amazon and Barnes & Noble's sites, among others. And you can keep up with the latest from marketing and sales practice by following us at mck underscore M-K-T-G-S-A-L-E-S. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.